The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 121 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on the show are my own. I'm not my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that have been privileged to the result of my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before I get started, I remind our listeners you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So, big show last week with national security expert Tyler Cohen Wood. I love that name. Tyler is awesome. She was on episode number 120 of Task Force 7 Radio. And Tyler came out on the show to talk about her efforts in getting more women into STEM-related jobs and getting girls interested in STEM careers early on in their lives, which is something we talk about often on this show. She also covered a wide variety of cybersecurity topics, including why she thinks people are still falling for these phishing scams and what are some of the biggest cybersecurity challenges businesses are facing today. So from an enterprise standpoint, it was very interesting and what people can do to enhance their own cybersecurity postures at home by protecting themselves, their children, and their family members. So this is a big topic because even cybersecurity professionals, and I know a lot of them, who do cybersecurity for a living don't necessarily translate that defensive mindset outside of work when, when they go home with their family members and when they go home to spend time with their family. And it's a nice reminder for them, listening to the show, that they should have that mindset when they go home. And it's important to carry over some of these things that they do at work every day. And maybe they take it for granted. I don't know. And it's also good information, if you're not in the business, about what you can do to protect your kids from the dangers of some of these online hoodlums and threats. So I think that's a really big topic. I think more people are interested in what you can do at home to protect yourself. So we'll probably continue to talk about it. But definitely last week's show was, it was a great place to start. And Tyler also gave her own opinion on what countries are the biggest national security threats. So, you know, we, we went over the usual suspects, but it was interesting what she had to say and how she thinks about things and how she frames it in terms of cyber risk. So what people can do to protect their privacy on the internet when using their social media accounts was also a topic of discussion. Um, and obviously a lot of people are on social media, so we think we found that pretty interesting. And we also talked about how social media has impacted businesses in the economy in this modern tech boom that we're going through. So it was a great show. If you missed it, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen on your favorite social media platform. I'm sorry, your playback, uh, playback medium platform that you listen to. That's national security expert Tyler Cohen Wood on last week's episode. That's episode number 121 of Task Force 7 Radio. So, well, you know, if you're listening to us live right now on Voice America, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all the TF7 Radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is the most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, you have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and interact with other TF7 radio listeners. So it's a lot of fun. We're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now, and we've made it super simple for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, 
and you will see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe right to the show, right from the TF7 Radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the entire TF7 family. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we got a great show for you this week. I'm really excited about this week's episode because we're going to break down some cybersecurity events in the news recently. Some of the things that everyone, a lot of people are talking about, everyone's talking about these issues. And in the first segment, we're going to talk about the unbelievable situation with the DNC caucuses in Iowa that has turned out to be a total nightmare for the Democratic Party. And by the way, any election that goes bad, all right, no matter what party, it's important for both parties in our country to get it right, right? So it's not only bad for the Democrats, it's bad for the Republicans, it's just bad for everybody, all right? So we want the technology for all of our elections to be stable and secure, and so we're going to break that down a little bit and talk about that. And in the second episode, we're going to unpack the recent Senate report that just came out on election security. So that's going to be very interesting and sort of in tune with the first segment. And then in the third segment, we're going to find out just what the real deal is with Jeff Bezos' cell phone hack, which I think has enormous news value in the sense that everyone should be paying attention to what happened here. Because if it can happen to him, it can happen to you. All right? It's that simple. And who, and who other than have on the show to talk about this and break this down for us? None other than CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fizzini is going to be right here with us this evening. Kate's been on the show before. I know you know her, but just in case, Kate Fazzini covers cybersecurity for CNBC, and she most recently covered cybersecurity for the Wall Street Journal and Wall Street Journal Pro Cybersecurity. And prior to that, she worked in the cybersecurity field and roles at Promontory Financial Group and J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. Kate holds a master's degree in cybersecurity strategy from George Washington University. She serves as an adjunct professor in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown University and in the cybersecurity program at the University of Maryland, another great program. So we've had some minor interference with the audio for this interview. So my apologies to everyone, and I promise I'm going to work hard to make sure that it doesn't happen again. But I hope you enjoy this episode. Kate is awesome, and we're talking about some very interesting stuff tonight. So here we go. So I'm excited to welcome back to the show CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fazzini. Kate, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George. It's good to be here. Hey, it's great to have you back. We got a lot to talk about. There's a lot in the in uh, the news lately about uh, cybersecurity, as always. But there's some um, uh, big, uh, I guess, big stories hitting the news about what's going on with the situation in Iowa. And uh, from all accounts, it really seems like the Democratic caucus was just so badly botched in a variety of different ways, mm-hmm. from Plan A to Plan B to the response, even to the media communications that were coming out of there. Total disaster. And uh, there's a lot we can learn from it. Let's start off by walking through the technology part of the debacle. What was the deal with this app? So uh, this this goes back, uh, I, I think, even back to the mid-summer of 2019 uh, when the the DNC and the uh, Iowa Democratic Party were talking about uh, doing their their caucus with a, a new application. Um, there was there were some concerns that had been expressed um, by uh, people, including at, at the federal level, that. Um, they didn't know who was making the app. There wasn't a lot of transparency about who was producing it. Um, there was also a lot of confusion because back, back in 2016, they did use um, an app for the caucus. It was it was a little bit of a different kind of setup, but it was made by Microsoft, and it, it apparently worked very well. Um, and there, there weren't obviously the, the kinds of issues that we saw this time around. And so I think um, a lot a lot of people, including me, had had mistakenly assumed that it was the same app, or it was you know a new iteration of what Microsoft had already produced. And and I I've sort of um, been feeling really guilty about not looking into this further, which was which is my job. Um, so uh, you know, th- there's definitely some regret there. But um, you know, what we saw then uh, at the caucus uh, was. Um, 
and George, as somebody who's done corporate uh, technology work, you will find this to be absolutely stunning, as I did, I'm sure, that uh, apparently the end users who were using this app used it for the first time, some of them, um, on the night of the caucus, on the live event that they were going to be uh, voting, you know, using it for the, the, the process. It, they actually, instead of using it to vote, they actually use it to uh, upload results that they were getting. So it was really supposed to be a simple process. Um, there, there wasn't a lot of testing. DHS has come out and said they had offered to um, test it for resiliency. Um, the DNC has said, no, we didn't hear about that. So um, a lot of stuff up in the air, but this was definitely a technology-led breakdown. So it, apparently the DHS said they offered to test the app, and then the DNC said no. They didn't want them to right. test it. Is that, is that what really happened? I think, um, actually, so that's what DHS says happened. Um, and I believe it was, and I was mistaken there, I believe it was a Democratic Party um, that responded to them, at least in, in, in their telling of this. Now, the Iowa Democratic Party representatives have come out and said, actually, we don't recall DHS contacting us and offering to do this. Um, and, and this really sounds so much like what happened in 2016, where the FBI was concerned about uh, hacking going on uh, against both of um, the Democratic National Committee and the Republican uh, Committee and approached the Democrats and, uh, you know, either there was a miscommunication or um, there was uh, simply turning them down for their help. And, and we had this breakdown between the party and the federal government, um, and a federal government under a different administration. So um, I know some people would think, well, maybe they didn't want DHS to help because it's a administration and they're suspicious. Um, you know, this, this exact same thing happened in 2016 when it was the Obama administration. So I think you have a failure to communicate that has um, gone on now for, for two presidential elections. It's, it's very concerning. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of things that are going on. There's a lot of, uh, I guess, it's very tumultuous times in the Democratic Party because from what I, what I understand, the, 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 the app is, was built by a company called Shadow and mm -hmm. they promote themselves as this political power for the progressive movement, meaning that maybe the app was chosen just because uh, the, the people that were building it were three former uh, operatives of the, of the Clinton campaign and Clinton advisors in, in the past. Um, and I, I find that to be a little troubling, the fact that people are, are, pick, are choosing technologies based on someone's political affiliation. So let's just dive a little bit into this. I mean, because I think from what I understand, this was built in 60 days. <laughs> this happened. <laughs> There's been a couple. I don't think that anybody has confirmed that. Just so you know, I, I've uh -huh. heard a couple of different numbers. I've heard that they were working on it for a year. Um, I haven't been able to confirm myself exactly how long it took them to build the app. And and Shadow Inc. You'll be shocked to hear has has not been particularly um, talkative about this. Um, mm. So, <laughs> but I'm just uh, putting that out there. Just just so. I, no, I, I, no, I appreciate that. And that's why we're talking. We want to we want to try to get the facts out there because this is. This is an interesting situation in a variety of different ways, and I think we can learn a lot from it. So I guess Mayor Pete paid about $42,000, or I heard 42, I heard 46, somewhere around that. He invested money, let's say, in around July of 2019 with, uh, with two other investors that uh, invested, uh, the Iowa and Nevada Democratic parties, and, they, and Mayor Pete invested the money allegedly for the software rights to the app. Now, did anyone ever think to themselves that using Mayor Pete's app to count Mayor Pete's votes <laughs> and those of his adversaries might be bad optics, especially if it's, it's because it's being made by former people associated with the Clinton campaign who historically and even just recently uh, Clinton admitted that they have huge problems with, with uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign. They still don't get along. There's so much uh, bad blood in there. So it seems like people were, this is like a recipe for disaster for the Democrats. I don't know why. Is anyone thinking about this? Is anyone talking about this in the news? I, 
I mean, I, I think uh, certainly we're, we're thinking about it and talking about the news. I think for, for the cybersecurity folks um, uh, who, are, who are watching this, and I had even said when it when this story first started kind of coming out, um, this is like the perfect case study for uh, my class uh, that I, I teach at Georgetown in, in cybersecurity communications because it is such a breakdown in communications. Um, there were so many bad decisions being made here. Uh, you, you know, you point to, to two of them, which is involving a company, the, the, the parent company of this Shadow Inc. is called Acronym. Um, they have a, a pack called Pacronym, um, a progressive pack. Um, you know, you would think, okay, well, maybe that's not a big deal because they're, they're progressive. It's it's a Democratic Party. Uh, they want to invest in these people. They have, they have their same ideals. But you, you, whatever their platform is, the kinds of things that they support, not all Democratic candidates are going to be on board with all of those things. Um, it, it, and then you do have the issue with, um, with Mayor Pete uh, Buttigieg um, also paying them for you know, some kind of services at some point. Um, it's still a little bit unclear what those were, if it was marketing or if it was um, for, for software rights, as you said. Uh, but there is that conflict of interest. Now, if you are a corporate person um, in charge of buying technologies for a company, <laughs> right. you on, also man. have to be extremely worried about that conflict of interest. I mean, <sighs> if you are buying uh, Microsoft technology for a bank and your wife was an executive at Microsoft, right example, they would say, we're going to have to have somebody else do this deal. I mean, that's, that's table stakes, right? Um, that's, it's, it's really stunning uh, that, that this happened in this way and that nobody said, you know, maybe there's a conflict here. Um, it, it, at the very least, now, the Democrats and the DNC have said in Iowa, they had every, every, um, campaign. So Bernie's campaign and, and Mayor Pete's campaign and, uh, you know, even Tulsi's campaign, I assume, had, had people on the ground making sure that the votes were being counted correctly. Um, so they really say that they're very confident that those manually counted votes were as accurate as possible. There's been some other reports that have come out now questioning that. Um, but uh, regardless of you know, how accurate the counts were, people in the campaigns that, uh, like you said, the Bernie campaign, I mean, there is a conflict of interest there that people are not going to be able to shake that. Um, it, it's it yeah, you really can't pull it back now. It's an done. intractable problem. Um, yeah. I, I just, it's, I, 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 it's, <laughs> I'm sort of stuttering because um, for a couple of days now, I've been completely stunned that, that nobody thought this would look bad. Yeah, I know. Um, you know with it, all the I mean, scrutiny that's going with on. Any, uh. It's unbelievable. I mean, with, with anybody who has any experience in technology generally, um, like I said, you would just never um, – the company you used to work for, people are going to scrutinize that if you're buying their stuff um, oh God, at, yeah. at the bank that you're working at now, let alone – what happened here? So, um, if you, yeah, if you were at the bank, here. you had to disclose whether you were on any advisory oh, yeah. boards or anything. I mean, anything, any relationships whatsoever. Yes. I mean, could you imagine owning? <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, what about it's, you? You call is. this one of the worst <laughs> IT failures ever? And, and, you know, more information is coming out. Not too much, but it's sort of trickling mm -hmm. out. You know, do you still believe that's the case? It's. It's funny because I, that was the headline I put out like the day after this happened. And I, I felt really confident at the time that this was one of the worst IT disasters ever. <laughs> um, and I got a lot of feedback from people who, who would say like, well, what about the Zoom? And, you know, they had all of these. Um, no, <laughs> there were other worse ones. And I, um, but nobody said that they thought I was wrong. Um, I, and, and I still am really confident that this is just one of the worst IT breakdowns in so many ways. Um, that has ever happened because this is like the the if, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, um, you should feel bad about this. Um, I th think a lot of Republicans are probably like you know kind of laughing, and of course you have Trump who's been um, giving the Democrats a lot of heat over this. Um, but well, I mean it was like is, a ground ball to him. You know, it's like you know, soft yeah, touch. Sure. You know what I mean? Come on. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, and these are the same people that have been, you know, terrifying or terrorizing the guy for like three years. So, I mean, but, you know, when you look at what they did, though, I mean, when you look at what they did, it's, it's, it's sort of well-deserved, right? So they didn't, 
They didn't deploy this tool through the app stores. They used their, their <laughs> test platforms. And they used, you know, I guess, I guess Apple has TestFlight and then Android has a mm -hmm. test platform called TestFerry. Um, and, you know, everybody knows that when you deploy through, these, the, through, the, through the platforms, they go through security reviews that could have picked up some of these issues. And there's some testing that goes on. Not, not that they shouldn't even tested it themselves. Everybody should have used it a few times before. I mean, there are so many things that should have happened before <laughs> this was deployed. So I guess what they call it, they call it sideloading. And I guess mm -hmm. they sideloaded this, you know, device onto their, the, these phones. And everybody, you know, I, I guess in our, in, our, in our profession, in our industry, and probably most of the people who are listening to the show know that there's a tremendous amount of security risk it's that great. comes with, you know, sideloading things into your enormous phone. amount of security. Yeah, even your I phone mean, tells you, "Hey, looks this probably isn't a good idea," <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, but, but to your point, you said everybody knows this. Uh, obviously, everybody does not know this. Um, otherwise, <laughs> that wouldn't have happened. Um, but well, I, some I of these people, are like grandpas, they have their have their children. You know, <laughs> their grandchildren are like you know helping them with their remote controls. And I guess one of the there was one reporter out there joking that you know, most of these people have to have, have their grandchildren configure their DVRs for them. How are they going to work an app on their phone? You know? <laughs> right. I mean, but they, they did. They did successfully in 2016. Um, you know, presumably you had um, an app created by Microsoft that um, went through the, the usual methods of testing. Um, that was, in, I'm going, I'm kind of going out on a limb here because um, I, I did not use that myself. I haven't tried them myself, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the, the familiarity of Microsoft and the user experience were probably um, more familiar to the people using it uh, and, and a little bit uh, just simply better performing. Um, but I do want to point out, you know, that uh, I, I don't think the Democrats deserve this. And, and now here, here is what I mean by that, because for both Republicans and Democrats, this is bad. This is just bad for democracy in general. This is like, we don't want anybody. It doesn't matter. I, at least I, I hope that wherever you sit um, in the political spectrum, we don't want uh, to have a breakdown like this in the election process that makes people question the results, um, that, that makes us lose confidence uh, with, with the process itself and whether the votes are being counted all of these conflicts of interest and whatnot, um, all of the security risks involved. Like, th this is just, it's bad. And that is why I said it was one of the worst IT failures ever, because it's, it's one that, it hurts our democracy itself. And I, I really don't think I'm exaggerating. No, I'm you're not. I think it hits the whole process. And even what, what's more is I think the, the company Vericode actually took a look at this app and determined that aside from the technology failures, that it could have been hacked mm -hmm. and that the transmissions to and from the app could have been compromised. Now, they, they looked at it. They didn't say that there was any hack. No one found any compromises to exist. But it said that it was built so poorly that it could have been compromised. And, you know, how does this instill confidence in the entire election I process? Am. I mean, I'm surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if it transmitted the coronavirus at this point. Like, <laughs> this app is just, like, one of the – it is – so yeah, I saw I saw the study that, that you saw as well, all the the security risks, um, and then you had this offer from DHS apparently on the table to to check the app, and I've really questioned as well, um, for DHS why was it an why was it a matter of them just offering their services and this um, the Iowa Democratic Party allegedly was able to just say no thanks I mean. DHS is supposed to be in charge of elections infrastructure. This counts. It's, I, I know that it's a political party and, and there's like all kinds of, you know, uh, but I don't know that, that from fighting and stuff, level, but why don't they, jurisdiction yeah. over what's going on with the Iowa democratic party. Right. I, well, I know, but, but this is people voting. I, I I personally, or, you know, if after they 2016 should. they took on this as critical infrastructure, they added elections uh, infrastructure to critical infrastructure. And if we're using an app to run an election, even if it's a primary, I don't understand how they didn't have um, visibility into this. I just think that's that a great point. I wonder if there. they could have imposed their will and actually said, no, we're going to take a look at it. 
I mean, if they had the authority to do that, I don't think they, they did. But I don't, I, mean, I don't think they do either, but I think that they should or somebody right, should. Right. Somebody has to be able to oversee this. this so process. what kind of lessons can we learn about resiliency and continuity planning when deploying technology like this? When the, the technology didn't work, the phone system didn't work, the communications mm-hmm. broke down. I mean, there was oh, absolutely God. no planning here whatsoever. Right? There was, this is another great part of this story, which, and I'm saying that sarcastically, obviously, um, is that they, you know, they had a backup that was going to be phoning in these results. And they had the phone number that was to be used to do this posted publicly. Um, And I mean, I don't know, I was a teenager once, I think every immature person on the planet saw that as an opportunity to to do some prank calling. 4chan kind of united to you know also encourage people to prank call this number that should have only been available to the party members really um, i didn't know and that. not made that's terrible. Uh, so they they jammed the phone lines and uh, so they, they de- so other people through. were ddosing the phone lines it just wasn't the yep. uh, it was an so. old-fashioned ddos of people right. that's some old-school ddosing going on there <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, everything, you know, what, what is apparent is that nobody, nobody practiced for this election and nobody went out and said, okay, when plan A fails, I'm going to do this. This person is in charge and here is how we're going to do it. Um, it, it, it like there was just no, it seems like maybe there was a resiliency plan. I don't know who had it. I don't know where it was stored. Um, maybe it was under lock and key, uh, but it didn't go right. And, and if, you if still you, have if, these. If you're a member of the Nevada Democratic Party right now, how, how, how happy are you that you didn't go first? <laughs> Very happy. <laughs> Very happy. I think they're probably, I mean, they've got, when is, uh, is it February is it 22nd is when that one Nevada is. Um, they've got a little bit of time to figure out their backup plan and what to do if things go wrong. Um, they've got to be pretty satisfied yeah, no that they saw this fall apart. No doubt. All right, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break, but stick with us. Lots more to talk about in this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. If you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, Please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., 
Cynet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Cynet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Cynet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Cynet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, last week the, the Senate released a 54-page partially redacted report that marks the third installment of the panel's five-volume series outlining the scope of Russian election interference in 2016. And there's so much to talk about here, but first things first – there have been a lot of reports here and there's installments and, and volumes and series. Why is this? Why is this? Why is this so? And why should we care? Uh, well, this, this report um, is one that came from the Senate side. Uh, it was expected to be a little bit more critical of uh, the, the DNC uh, and, and whether they had, you know, to our prior conversation, um, accepted help that was offered to them in a way that would be appropriate if they had looped in the right people. And it was a little bit more critical. Um, it, it goes into some detail uh, about the relationship between um, the Democrats and the different committees and Senate committees and kind of describes how they thought that there was a breakdown in communication there. So it was a little bit different than some of the other reports, which were like the Mueller report or uh, the one of the indictments of the, the 12 Russian hackers uh, that, that the FBI said were responsible for this, in that it 
it kind of puts a little spotlight on whether the DNC did the right things or not. It wasn't, um, to most of us who were observing it and who had been waiting for this, um, it wasn't as critical as we thought it was going to be. But it was, it was critical as far as how they had communicated this. Yeah, so I guess the report is covering the look back and investigation into the, the months-long data exfiltration from the Democratic National Committee, as well as the, the social media disinformation campaign that occurred uh, during the, the election and, and probably persisted long after the election, to be honest with you. So the report basically says that there was widespread paralysis. I mean, you know, some were saying paralysis by analysis. Or, you know, I mean, it's just, this is the kind of thing that I'm very familiar with, especially in corporate, where you get a, a real bunch of really smart people in the room, and everybody wants to talk and give their opinions, and you talk for like two hours, and you get absolutely nothing out of it, and there's no, you know, there's no action plan or no agreement on, on what goes on, and it's just a, a terrible experience. It's something that you want to try to avoid at all costs. So, it happens most of the time when you get intellectuals involved in the room. And the conversations drag on and drag on, usually for no reason. So we got a lot of a bunch of smart people looking at this, um, and then it also says that the uh, the Obama administration prevented the U.S. from developing an effective response to combat Russian hacking in the 2016 election because they were quote not well postured to counter Russian election interference activity with a full range of readily available policy options, right? Mm -hmm. So this is another election security failure, and this time it also included this you know, lack of policy options available to counter a nation state and someone like Russia especially uh, to influence our elections. So why is this so, and, and, and what do we need to do to fix this? So, I mean, there have been a, a number of things that have happened since this time. Um, it's really, you know, it, I think playing out now in what we, we're seeing in Iowa as well, um, some of the legacy issues. Um, one of those is that, um, so in, in 2016 and before that, uh, when DHS or every, or the FBI um, were dealing with the DNC over this, they were treating the situation um, as they would a typical uh, cyber incident uh, at a non-governmental victim. So it was like, you know, if you ever worked somewhere uh, where you had to have FBI or DHS contact, um, that is sort of how it was working um, with this kind of pseudo-governmental organization that is the DNC. It's not a government organization. It's outside the government. But obviously, it has great you know, concern to the citizenry. So um, there is just this sort of nebulous, when do we help, when do we not help uh, issue that, that DHS has struggled with for a long time. Um, and at the, the time uh, that this was happening, DHS had very little remit to actually come in and forcefully do anything, as, as to the FBI. Um, that really hasn't changed that much. Um, they did add election security to uh, the menu of uh, critical infrastructure that DHS is, supposedly has purview for, um, but that has mainly extended to the states and the, the actual, like, voting machines themselves and the protocols for storing them and for taking them out and for letting people interact with them. Um, it has not extended to the political parties. Uh, it's still a very political environment and that is problematic just as it was in 2016. So let's unpack the report a little bit. What, what's new that you found in the report? Does it say anything about CrowdStrike or the FBI or the DNC? Anything that we haven't heard before? Well, you know, one of the things that came out of this was um, that, that I found to be interesting was that they were going to now um, undertake security audits of all the state and border registration systems. Um, they uh, had expected there to be some private sector assistance. Um, state and local officials were to uh, be alongside them for this. And that has been kind of a touch-and-go scenario, even though that is the remit now, the federal government that came out. Um, I was surprised to see how extensive um, that remit was supposed to be, that they were going to be allowed to audit us. Because there are some secretaries of state who have disallowed DHS um, from coming in uh, to, you know, work with them on this. Uh, 
Now, as far as CrowdStrike goes, this does go into a little bit more detail um, about the DNC hiring CrowdStrike um, during the time when the FBI was offering their help. Um, it was it was helpful because I think there have been a lot of theories that have come up about what CrowdStrike's role was in all of this. And this report at least makes it clear that uh, by the IL, uh, although there's some consternation that uh, the DNC did not allow the federal government to work uh, a little bit more extensively on the problem, this was really, um, you know, a pretty standard use of, of CrowdStrike's abilities. Um, you've, you've seen that. So the, the Obama administration issued several high-level warnings of potential retaliation uh, to Russia. So basically someone from D.C. called somebody over there in Moscow and said, hey, you guys keep it up and, you know, we're going to do you dirty too, you know, knock it off. And uh, it didn't really have any effect whatsoever. I mean, Moscow showed no respect whatsoever to those warnings or the ability or even motivation for the United States to follow through with any of those threats. Why was that? Um, why was that? But I don't know that Russia has ever been particularly inclined to listen uh, to warnings from the U.S., especially when it comes to intelligence operations. But um, there's definitely uh, some track record here of countries not being respectful of these sort of informal arrangements. Um, and I know that, you know, with China um, during that same time period, we did try out some uh, informal, please don't steal our intellectual property uh, type agreement with them. Yeah, and pretty please. That, and it, it, it worked in the sense that um, the, there was a little bit of, a, a, from, from what my sources have said, a little bit of a, a drawback in how many attempts at hacking our intellectual property we were getting from China, but uh, that Went from that a million changed. a day to nine hundred thousand. Right, uh, <laughs> that that changed back, and it is now you know back at levels that it was before. So I think it, it just shows that when it comes to, to to hacking, when it comes to digital counterintelligence, that there we don't have enough in terms of tools to make countries stop attacking us if it's part of their intelligence plan, if it's part of their longer-term goals. Uh, you know, we can do sanctions, but that sanctions have their limits, and, you know, we, we need to come up with some other way to make this better. Of course, there's a trade agreement behind that might uh, include some... Uh, provisions about intellectual property theft from China. I'm sorry, we're jumping to China from Russia, but... Um, oh, it really doesn't matter who it is. There. I mean, whoever <laughs> it is, right? The United States yeah. has to have a policy in place mm -hmm. and a plan to deal with people who are trying to interfere with our elections. Yeah. And, you know... The and fact we certainly... Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, George, go on. No, well, the, fa the, the fact of the matter is that we didn't have one, and I'm not sure we... we for the last election, I'm not sure we had one for this election. And, and, what, and what are we going to do about it, and does it carry any weight, what we say? It definitely seems like we're behind on our planning. Uh, we saw yesterday that the Government Accountability Office has uh, told the Department of Homeland Security that they need to uh, finish up their election security plan. Now, uh, you know, it is and the fact that DHS has not finalized their election security plan is pretty alarming. And then the Department of which the congressional office the auditing of other government agencies, um, they really came down hard on DHS for this and said, you know, you need to have this plan in place. DHS has said a lot, most of this plan will be uh, ready for consumption by uh, Valentine's Day. So we have one more week and we'll see what the plan is. Um, hopefully we'll get to see as much of it as possible. But um, I, I think that, you know, this this report um, out of what happened in 2016 shows that we still have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, it's amazing because we've had, you know, three years now to do it. Um, so the report also says that both the Democrats and the Republicans, basically the whole process, were, were, they were scorned by the report that said that they didn't issue a bipartisan statement 
about what was happening at the time um, and that next time this happens, transparency should be part of the response and transparency should carry the day. Now, do you think we're going to see more interference in our 2020 election? If we do, is there going to be transparency in the form of this, uh, you know, bipartisan statement that comes out and says, hey, this is what's happening to us right now? I mean, no, I don't think (laughs) that's the simple answer. Um, You've got uh, two groups here that um, are are just not getting along with each other. And when you see the secretive nature of this app that was used in Iowa, the the transparency aspect of things, um, you know, I I, I appreciate the call for a bipartisan statement on before, like, both parties should be very concerned about any attack or n- not even attack or any other kind of um, major problem that could affect a, a, a good, solid democratic voting process in November and before November. So um, I would love to see something like that. I just don't think it's going to happen. There's, there's so much sleeping I, I doubt that we're going to fulfill what the Senate wants here. Yeah, and the report also recommends that the U.S. exert its leadership in creating new international cybersecurity norms, and that really caught my eye because, I mean, you know, of course, I mean, everyone in, the, in, in this industry has been clamoring for this type of thing. I mean, how much pull does this recommendation from this report really carry, and do you think it's going to result in any action, who's gonna, and who's going to do it? I think that, that 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 final question is the big question. Who's who's going to do it? I think that um, you know we still have. Uh, I, I think the, the organizations that have the capacity to do it are probably under resourced um, and and don't have the um, ability to uh, have have the pull with foreign governments that they should. And then when you see stuff happening like um, the UK being a little ambiguous about whether they are going to use Huawei equipment um, that we have banned in the United States, um, you know, you can see where issuing a series of, of standards for that, that could, uh, you know, be international in how they're applied would be really, really difficult. We, we would say you can't use that equipment. They would say we're going to use it. And, and it's getting people behind that is just going to be very, very difficult at this point. All right, Kate, we got to take another short break, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization 
organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guests. CNBC cyber security reporter Kate Fazzini. So, uh, Kate, I think we fixed the audio from uh, the, the last segment. So, uh, we, yes, I'm sorry. I apologize to the listeners uh, for the issues there. <laughs> no, it's quite all right. Sometimes technology is, you know, a little sh- shaky. So, uh, hopefully, we fixed it and uh, we won't have any uh, of those interruptions again. So, I want to talk a little bit on this segment about the, the Jeff Bezos cell phone hack. And this has been the topic of, of uh, a, a lot of uh, controversy. There's been a lot of stories out there. I think you did a story as well. And mm-hmm. this is uh, probably one of the most controversial hacking stories to be out there in, in the last uh, few months. Can you take us through it from the beginning and, and really set the story straight for us? Because there's so many different versions of what, what really happened. Yeah, so I'll try to run through a, a quick timeline of the event. This kind of all started... Uh, a little later last year, um, you had uh, this um, apparently going on behind the scenes. Uh, somebody had gained access to photos and text messages between um, Jeff Bezos and his girlfriend, um, and he was, you know, had of course also at the same time in the middle of a high-profile divorce. Um, those photos and text messages apparently ended up in the hands of the National Enquirer, um, which has lent such a, it's already had a bit of a tabloid element as far as a cybersecurity story goes, but then that really literally brought it into that realm. Um, and, and the day before uh, this was to be published in the National Enquirer, um, Jeff Bezos himself wrote an article about it, um, posted it on the, the website Medium uh, to kind of counter uh, what he said were attempts to bribe him in some way into, um, you know, 
keeping this information quiet. Uh, now, you know, we, we went on, um, there, were, there were a couple of other threads going on at the same time as well. Um, at the same time, Jeff Bezos, who, who owns the Washington Post, um, had been uh, the subject of what appeared to have been an uh, organized hacking campaign, or I'm sorry, an organized social media campaign uh, against him by uh, the, the Saudi Arabian government or people who are in favor of, of the Saudis um, because of his support of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, a reporter who had um, done some critical uh, reporting about Saudi Arabia and who was very tragically um, later killed, almost certainly as a result of that reporting. Um, and somewhere in, in all of this, um, Jeff Bezos had contracted out with a couple of different um, third parties who indicated that his phone had been hacked um, by the Saudis in this most recent report um, that the UN has now taken up. This is what happened most recently in the last few weeks. Um, the UN got a hold of this report. It was done by a firm called FTI Consulting. You're very familiar. I think you've had um, Anthony on, on your air before. Um, and they uh, said that this needs further investigation because it appears that um, associates or the crown prince of Saudi Arabia himself um, was involved in this incident against Jeff Bezos. Now, what's not clear is what the hacking of, of Bezos's phone has to do with the National Enquirer and the, the, all of this stuff. They might be unrelated. You know, Bezos has imply that they were related at, at various times, but this is some of the, the, the part of this that's a little bit up in the air. Um, what is clear is that this did use um, WhatsApp in some way. It exploited the, the WhatsApp chat app. Um, and there are a lot of high profile people who have been very worried about what happened here because they feel that they might be um, on the receiving end of a really sophisticated attack like this. So a lot of moving parts there. I'll let you just shoot some questions off. Yeah. So I guess a couple of things, I guess the, the original reports came out that he received a WhatsApp message from the Prince's mm -hmm. personal account. And, uh, and that's how the phone got hacked. And then there's been some stories after what really happened. Do we know how that phone got hacked? I, I think that what, but, you know, one of the issues here, and I, I know folks at FTI consulting um, and, and they're great. They're a very good firm, very solid firm. Um, but the, the fact remains that they were hired by Bezos. Um, and so what the UN is saying is that we need an independent investigation, independent of both Bezos and, and the Saudis to look into this because, you know, this well, state sponsored hacking of very high profile um, foreign figures. Uh, um, there were also a lot of allegations that, that this same hacking campaign that hit Bezos had affected a number of Saudi dissidents living in other countries across Europe and elsewhere. And the UN wants to, uh, it's a little bit unclear what, if they are going to sponsor this uh, investigation. I mean, I think everybody's hopeful that they will, um, but a neutral party who can say uh, with certainty and with no ties to either side, this is what happened here. So how did the UN get involved in this? I mean, what's, what's going on with That's that? a good question. That's a good question. I mean, I think um, the, there's another element to this that, that has come up that the UN um, has been, uh, I'm sorry, I think, did I cut out there for a second? No. Am I okay? Okay. Yeah, so the good. UN has for a very long time been concerned about um, these attacks, whether it's on social media or, or the phone hacks over WhatsApp, of um, dissidents, especially Saudi dissidents in, in other countries. Um, and they've been really concerned because there, there's a, an Israeli firm called NSO Group um, that has occasionally been implicated in these, these kinds of attacks. This is the organization that um, is is perhaps best known for assisting uh, the FBI in uh, getting the uh, phone open of the um, San Bernardino shooters. I think you might remember this case. Yes. Um, they also say that they, you know, they sell this software. They're very selective about who they sell it to. Um, it's very sophisticated. It can 
indeed uh, hack phones, but they only sell it to governments who are trying to catch criminals and terrorists. Um, the UN report really heavily, while it didn't directly implicate NSO group in the malware that, that Bezos had received, they um, were very heavily implying that they might somehow be involved. Um, NSO group has really vehemently said that no, they were not involved in this. But I think that the UN um, has been particularly concerned about this kind of software being used in international conflict, um, being sold, you know, NSO Group, of course, is not the only company that makes this type of uh, malicious software. Um, so the sale of this kind of software from private companies that can hack, you know, into anybody's phone, whether it's being sold to some sort of warlord um, who, who is, you know, somebody who's on the UN's watch list, that they're very concerned with this this kind of powerful hacking tool being in uh, the hands of a private company. I think they want to get to the bottom of this for that reason. So it's interesting to me, I've seen a lot of reports out there that saying that, you know, some of the use of common passwords and the same password was a problem uh, in, in, in this hack. And when it comes mm -hmm. to these kind of type of style breaches, rich people aren't any different than normal folks. They're using the same <laughs> password 50 times over like a bunch of different accounts. They're mixing personal and business accounts with the same, uh, credentials and they're not using multi-factor authentication. And when are people going to start using password managers and using MFA and some of the simple things that we have out there? Uh, I mean, it, is the word getting out? I mean, that, in terms of their privacy, I mean, this is going to change it. I think that, I feel like I've been so pessimistic on this uh, episode. So. <laughs> But I, I can't stop. So I'm going to say no. They're not. Um, you know, learning, unfortunately. Uh, I, I think one of the things that was interesting about this to me is that I, I had a lot of people um, who were very, very concerned uh, about what this means for them as far as, you know, and if I can just receive, because the way the, the most sophisticated version of this this software works is you just receive a text message or a call. You don't even have to answer it. And your, your phone has already been infected. Um, and, and, you know, does this mean that somebody can hack me in this way? And, and I said, unless you're like a really high profile politically exposed person, a license for this type of malicious product um, is, is, can run you in the six to seven figures. Nobody's going to be doing that to, you know, my mother, for instance, who was worried about this. Um, what you do actually have to worry about is exactly what you say or the passwords, the banking stuff, the day-to-day -day things. Um, I think that stories like this let people focus on um, something that's kind of magical and really outrageous when what, what they really should be concerned about are the passwords on their phone, you know, whether they uh, are changing them enough, whether they're getting phishing emails or requests for wires from uh, strange yeah. people and fulfilling the audio surveillance systems in your house right i mean people Absolutely. Can, the whole world can be on video to some dude over another mm -hmm. country i mean it's crazy you got to really yeah. just use different passwords for everything mm -hmm. it's it's uh, really the simple stuff so i i just tell people not to worry about the super sophisticated things because it's the simple things that are already getting you do you think it's feasible that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia himself sent malware to Bezos? I think it's, uh, I think it's a very suspect. I, I think it really has to be investigated. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, from any, in any way, as far as an operation goes, I mean, uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense at all, unless somebody was spoofing him. Um, why would you have this, very high profile, one of the richest men in the world, do this to one of the other richest men in the world. I mean, I mean, unless they were involved in some sort of school style, you know, but I just don't think that it, it, it's really hard for me to believe. I'll just say that. Yeah. I was having a conversation with an information security professional recently. And I said, you just have to spend a lot of time, you know, uh, sort of falling in love with your iPhone, like, or your smartphone. You really got to sit down go over every single little the app that's on there, go over all the privacy settings on every single app to really make sure that you're securing your iPhone the best way you can to protect your privacy because there's so many different ways that, you know, people are monitoring, especially, you know, your GPS settings alone. I mean, how many mm -hmm. apps ask for your GPS uh, settings? I mean, they're, I know. so all these apps are monitoring where you are 24 hours a day. You know, that's, that's terrible. 
um, mm-hmm. you know, for most people. So is there anything especially that we can go, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was saying, especially if you're a high profile person and somebody has an interest in knowing where you are, I mean, you really have to be careful. Yeah. Once you become a high pro and you're, you know, a bigger target and you're having a, a large attack surface, you got to pay attention to everything. Unfortunately, it's just a malicious world out there. I hate to say it. Is there anything that we can learn about corporate protection and cybersecurity from this event? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, anybody who does this as part of their remit, um, you know, you're going to have to step up your game because uh, the tools available to go against people like CEOs or board members, um, people who are in the political arena or sports figures, um, it's just really ramped up. And uh, the knowledge of those individuals has not ramped up alongside that. And, you know, you just have to be especially concerned about every device that person is using, coaching them on who they should talk to, who they should share things with. I mean, you know, the, the part of the Bezos story is that, uh, now, he, he has, I believe it was the uh, law enforcement agents who had um, said that his, the brother of, his, of Bezos' girlfriend was possibly responsible for leaking these photos. So, you know, you have to think, you have to coach that person on every single person who they're, they're interacting with, that that person is also um, somebody who might leak this this information and, you know, your security extends so far now um, out from yourself. I think that, that there's a lot of lessons here for corporate security. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, Kate, thanks so much for coming on the show, spending some time with us. We love talking to you about mm-hmm. current events. Anything ever comes up, please just hit me up right away. You're always welcome here. Um, Thank you, you so back. much. <laughs> Great show. Thanks, George. Great. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 